Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Levant X podcast with me, your host, Sophie Gaziri. Today, we are delving into the Horn of Africa. As we are all aware, Ethiopia is in turmoil and those fleeing the conflict are in desperate need of aid and medical relief. We have two wonderful guests on our show this morning as we look into why this conflict is so significant, what has taken place so far, what are the status of the refugees, and how is the international community reacting? On top of all of this, we have the COVID-19 pandemic making the whole situation worse. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Khuloud and Fathiyah to the show. Let's start with Khuloud. Khuloud, could you introduce yourself to our guests and tell them a little bit about your role um, in Sudan and regards to this conflict? Thank you, Sophie. I uh, run a think tank here called Inside Strategy Partners that was set up uh, to support the transition in its various forms through its various actors and, and of course uh, uh, Sudan is a, a big regional player and so we keep a very close watch on what's happening on you know on our, with our neighbors uh, particularly the ones that we share a border with and Sudan's transition has been quite fraught with um, let's say international uh, support and or interference um, and Ethiopia is also undergoing its own transition of course and so you know looking at Ethiopia, which is slightly ahead temporarily than Sudan, it gives you an indication of how things could potentially um, develop in, the, in some of the pitfalls. And, you know, regional disintegration is, is one of them. Uh, so we've been monitoring the situation in Ethiopia quite uh, carefully. Quite diligently, I assume. <laughs> okay, thank you, Khuloud. Fethiya, can you do the same? Introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Hi, Sophie, how are you? Um, my name is Fatheya Gela. I do write quite extensively on Horn of Africa issues, um, particularly issues, you know, regarding conflict and conflict resolution. Um, there's quite a lot of changes that are happening on the Horn of Africa, and sometimes that gets forgotten in a in a globalized world. Um, given Africa, Horn of Africa is quite strategically close to the Red Sea. Um, you really can't ignore it. And uh, currently what's happening in Ethiopia has come to the forefront of the international um, forum because, um, because of the history um, in the Horn of Africa um, with many countries who are who had volatile uh, history, um, you know, needless to say, uh, from Sudan to Somalia to, um, uh, you know, the, the conflict has been on uh, ongoing, but uh, especially South Sudan, I mean, it's 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 quite whatever happens in Ethiopia has dire effect in the region. Africa as a whole, um, Ethiopia matters. Whatever happens in Ethiopia has significant impact on regional uh, uh, countries. It, it has significant impact on, um, uh, you know, uh, peace and security, and uh, short term and long term. And Ethiopia is evolving. Ethiopia is a federal system. And what you have at the moment is push and pull factor between the federal system, um, which has been introduced by TPLF originally anyway, uh, and the central power in Addis Ababa. It's an internal crisis, and it doesn't it doesn't warrant international intervention per se. 
Um, and that has I its just, own... Be, before you, before yeah. you continue there, I just wanted to say, Khulud, how do you feel about that? when Ethiopia is standing there and saying that this is an internal conflict. Um, obviously, you are having uh, refugees uh, flood over, uh, over the borders. That how could this be an internal conflict when you have a significant role to play here and possibly in rallying the UN or the inter international community to help uh, with aid and medical and, and so many different human rights abuses that are taking place. I'm sorry for cutting you off, Fethiyah, but I thought it would be very interesting to understand what, how um, Sudan feels about this. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, Sudan has been hosting Eritrean and Ethiopian refugees since uh, for, for decades, uh, specifically since the 1986 or so. Um, and so we are accustomed, if you will, to several uh, waves of, of refugees coming across the border. I think what makes this particular um, refugee flow one that is of concern is that Sudan is currently not exactly as stable as it has, as it has been, um, and it's also not in a, a, an economic position to really absorb the, the, these numbers of refugees that we're seeing, you know, currently around the 50,000 mark in just a number of weeks and expected to be um, around the 200,000 marks in the next few months. Um, at, at the same time, you know, international response through UNHCR um, and, and other international actors is going to be limited because though crisis funding is expected, the COVID pandemic has hit uh, in you know, countries around the world as well as um, you know, bilateral relations that feed into the UN, etc. And so we can't really expect, I think, um, as much international funding for this as, as we'd like, as we would hope to see in order to be able to respond to the protection and assistance needs of refugees. Um, I think, you know, communally or socially, there's a lot of... Um, there's what I'm seeing is a lot of welcoming remarks and welcoming uh, moves towards accepting the refugees. Um, but if, but the east already, the east of Sudan, which borders both Eritrea and Ethiopia, and particularly the, the Tigray region, has been quite um, fraught with ethnic tensions in the past few months. And so this, um, because a lot of these ethnic groups are shared between the borders, this may kind of tip the scales on a lot of those ethnic conflicts as well. And so Sudan will have to not just mind, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the well welfare of the refugees coming in, but also the welfare of citizens in that region so that the, tip, the, skip, the scales don't tip um, in terms of the ethnic tensions. Well, that, that, that's very interesting. So this goes back to your statement, Fethiya, which saying that um, Ethiopia is considering this internal. It's obviously not internal. It's obviously going to, as you said, you know, when in your introduction, what happens in Ethiopia is going to have a ripple effect or a domino effect on the countries like Sudan surrounding it and others. So how can this be... Um, honed in on how, how, what can the countries surrounding Ethiopia, how can they help? And what, what is the history of this conflict that might make it very hard to um, control and ease? It is a good question. Um, and taking on what Khulud has said already, it's true. Sudan has actually gone through the rigmarole of becoming democratic since last year. So uh, with the demise of al-Bashiri government and with the rise of um, President Hamdouk, um, and uh, obviously the military uh, is headed by uh, al-Burhan, um, it has a role to play, significant role, especially regarding the DERD, which I'm jumping ahead, but it matters. Um, because external factors 
do have an impact on whatever the domestic issues um, that are happening in Ethiopia um, uh, in, in some way. Ethiopia is, is, is not just one tribe, it's many tribes uh, or, or many ethnic groups. The federal system was there, was initiated by the TPLF-led government before Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018. And what he did was, um, he was, he, you know, the EBRD system that was part of the, that the TPLF was part of, was all endorsing um, the, the sort of the federal regional um, um, devolution, so to speak. So, so this idea that they are, um, it's almost that the government feels of Ethiopia that the TPLF is renegading on, on, on what has been agreed upon um, by, by, for, by, by going ahead with the elections that they had in, 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 in September. Now going back, uh, the TPLF-led government uh, was was dominated by strong characters. Malay Zanawi, who passed away in 2012, has initiated ma major changes into into Ethiopia. Um, he's the one who basically um, um, uh, initiated the GERD program, uh, the dam. Um, he's the one who actually tried to kind of be in charge, so to speak, of the Horn of Africa affairs. So by Abia coming into power, there was a lot of suppression and there was a lot of strong um, centralized government that was associated with human rights issue violation. So there was already, by the time Abia arrived on the scene in 2018, a relief, so to speak, domestically. They welcomed his initiative. They welcomed the idea that it's all fair now. Everyone can sit at the table politically and can um, voice in their opinion. Before that, there was a, a form of uh, um, centralized, uh, effectively, oppression. And what's happening now in terms of regional powers is they are adapting that Ethiopia is changing with, uh, with Abiy Ahmed's policy. But, but because of this recent tension between the Tigray TPLF-led government um, or region, um, and, and Ethiopia, the, the central uh, the government in, in Addis Ababa, um, what's happening is, had had the oppression has been so bad, and the TPLF quite rightly should have should have had the election that they did. I mean, it was delayed because of COVID. Um, there's a point there, but neither the Oromba uh, uh, Liberation Party has come ahead and 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 voiced their opinion about this. Neither did the Amhara. Neither did the Somali region. Um, in Ethiopia, led by Mustafa Omar, um, has has voiced their, their their discontent with Abiy Ahmed's policies uh, or the Prosperity Party policies. So you have to understand that internally, Ethiopia is 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 as the as the head of state of of Djibouti was asked recently. He said that what Abiy Ahmed is preventing is the breakdown of Ethiopia as we speak. Um, is that how you? Is that how Sudan feels, Khulud? I'm not sure. So the problem with Sudan is at the moment is it has two branches of government, at least two branches of government. And so to get a clear idea of what Sudan, the country, as foreign policy on Ethiopia is, would be quite tricky, I think. It's fair to say that, you know, the military has one uh, foreign policy position and potentially the civilian government doesn't quite uh, echo that. But, you know, I'd like to pick up on something that, uh, that uh, Fathia said, which is that, you know, other parts of Ethiopia aren't um, kind of c crying out and saying that they also want to uh, to, to secede or to, to have more autonomy. And it's because, you know, uh, the, the TPLF 
which is the um, the, Tigray and people, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is the ruling party of the Tigray region, they had been in power for so long. And, and, and during that time, people had cultivated a dislike, a hatred for them. And so once Abiy Ahmed came in, um, you know, and he was seen as this great reformer, it kind of made their time in, in government pale in comparison. And so they were thinking rather than this unity within um, you know, Ethiopia that Abiy's trying to maintain is rather this common hatred of Tigray that is keeping so far other parts of the country like Oromia and Amhara not um, opposing uh, what Abiy is doing because actually a lot of the language that we're hearing from Abiy is, you know, um, very kind of uh, bellicose and some might say genocidal, which would should trigger an internal, um, you know, wake up call to the different regions. And part of that is that the ethnic federalism system that you have in Ethiopia has just not been able to be successful because there's these mixed messages that's coming, uh, mixed messaging that's coming from the central government. You know, on the one hand, you have this devolved system, both uh, politically and economically, um, that is meant to allow different uh, ethnic groups to have autonomy over their different areas. But at the same time, you have these nationalist projects like the Dam Project, which as Fakhia mentioned, was started by the previous uh, president, uh, Meles Zenawi. Um, and so people in Ethiopia don't really know what the central logic of Ethiopia is at the moment, I think. And, you know, the thing about Ethiopia is that it's not post-colonial like its neighbors, it's post-imperial. And what that means is that every government that has taken power, you know, post, um, you know, the Haile Selassie regime has been trying to sometimes even artificially conserve this, you know, unity rather than through um, consensus, through coercion. And that is what has led, for example, for the breakup of Eritrea. And now we're seeing the Tigray region also for now. Um, it's, it's for now, I mean, the only one that's doing so. But in the future, we might see other regions do the same. Just briefly, because you asked me about Sudan rather than Ethiopia. You know, the military in, in Sudan is, I think, Play, waiting to see how it can play its hand. So far, it's hedging its bets. Um, in, in October, the head of the Sovereignty Council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, went to Ethiopia with the head of military intelligence and the head of the um, General uh, Intelligence Services. Um, and so it was this very security-heavy entourage that went to meet Abiy Ahmed. And I think um, my analysis is that they struck a deal where the, the military in Sudan would guard that uh, Ethiopia-Sudan border uh, to make sure that the TPLF in Tigray could not access support from Sudan like it could during the Bashir years. Um, and if that does happen, then Abiy's chances of succeeding in Tigray are greater. If it doesn't happen and the military does decide to back the TPLF, then Abiy's uh, whole you know, law and order, quick fix, um, approach to this war is going to be very much undermined. So Sudan has a very crucial role to play, and I think the military knows that. What that means is that the military is also going to try and leverage this to get Ethiopia, or specifically Abiy Ahmed, to sign off on contested land between Ethiopia and Sudan, the Feshiga region, um, making sure that uh, you know Sudan has uh, autonomy and, and sovereignty over that piece of land in exchange for continued support for the TPLF. But actually, it's not in Sudan's interest to support the TPLF necessarily here, because that will prolong the war more than it already seems to be. And, um, you know, they are meant to be making a break, I suppose, from the Bashir era. So in a way, if you really want to look at it, it's a bit of a land grab situation. And uh, the people seem to be like usual, the, um, what's the word? Uh, 
the, the ones left behind, you know, they just happen to be collateral damage. That's what I was looking for. So you have all of these players playing, making secret deals like we might have just witnessed between the, the military in Ethiopia to try and make sure that there is some form of autonomy and, and things don't change. But I think in this, uh, this year of 2020, we are very aware that it is, it is the year of change and um, people cannot stand for it. And uh, people want to speak and people want to make a difference and um, they want to be heard. So on, on, the, on the topic of people, um, you mentioned earlier, Fatheya, when we were, we, were, we were having a small conversation before we went live, is that there's no internet, there's no uh, coverage. Um, everything that we're hearing are from experts or professionals or government officials, which we don't know if it is it is it the truth? Is it fake news? Is it transparent? You know, there's no conflicting reports here. So, Fatheya, what is the way forward now? You know, hearing what uh, Khaloud just said is that there are probably backroom deals taking place. I mean, the people that are on the ground now, are they going to be running for a long time? No, I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that common sense prevails. I'm hoping that the United Nations Security Council's first meeting regarding this is taken on board by Abi Ahmed, who, after all, did win um, a Nobel Prize for peace. Um, so this is quite important for him to realize that the mighty forces of the Ethiopian army, if they have prevailed in the Tigray region and that the TPLF is going to be disarmed in any way, shape or form, that they don't take the high horse and say things like um, you, 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 don't, we, you will not need to come to the negotiating table because your authority uh, as a... As a um, as a representative of the Tigray people is obsolete. I think it's best to keep the Tigray people together because, and we have to separate between the leaders and the people. The people are the ones who are suffering. The, there is about 100,000 Eritrean refugees uh, in Adi Harush refugee camp and, and, and um, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Felipe Grande, he did say um, that the situation is could escalate worse than what it is at the moment. Um, humanitarian um, assistance have been offered and the Ethiopian government should be able to realize that uh, prolonging um, a siege in Mekalay or, um, you know, preventing the internet from, um, from you know, or, or access to, to, to kind of services is, is, is to their own detriment. Um, and there's also a fear. There's quite a lot of mortars, military equipments that are in the northern part of Ethiopia. Um, so it's quite, uh, it was quite important for Abiy Ahmed to be seen as a leader who would take effective action to kind of quell the rebellion that he saw coming from the Tigray region. But at the same time, the TPLF is part and parcel are Ethiopian still. So this is issue of human, uh, escalating the humanitarian uh, um, you know, suffering that's happening on the borders with, with Sudan um, is, is going to have a serious impact on peace and security. Secessionism in Africa is a huge topic. If, this, if the TPLF dreams of self-determination or autonomy means that they want to be a separate country to the rest of Ethiopia and leading 
to the, to the breakup of Ethiopia, it means that other countries in Africa, in Kenya, in, in Uganda, northern Uganda, in Somalia, there will be cataclysmic effects. And within the social media and, and sort of what's been reported, there's a lot of supposition. There's a lot of, from particularly from the European idea of looking at conflicts in Africa, that we know better, that we know what's going on in, on the ground. That's not true. Um, sometimes you have to understand that um, only the people who are living the experience can vocalize their pain. I think I'm just going to talk from my own experience being based in Beirut and us having similar issues. I think it's more sectarian here in a sense, but uh, we do have 18 different sects. We do have a government that was set up in order to represent these sects. And then we had the rise of Hezbollah. And now you have Shias in the country that are scared to be associated with that uh, militia group just for being from that sect. So um, we are facing similar issues here. And then we do have uh, Europe and the rest of the world pointing their finger and saying, yes, but we do know better. And if you do this, you know, this will happen. And if you do this, th this is better for you. But at the same time, again, the only people suffering, the only people that can't get to the shop and buy bread are the ones that are here. Um, you can let keep laying on the sanctions while you're in an economic crisis. It doesn't mean you're going to get any form of solution because you do need to rally the people behind you in order to make a difference in the country, whichever difference is the right way forward. Now, um, I'm sorry I had to bring that up because as you were talking, I was starting to see this parallel world, you know, and and it seems to be having what we're discussing is not just taking place in Ethiopia or Lebanon. You know, these these countries are not alone. This is taking place across the world. We are seeing this across the world because it's coming back to the fact that the people never had the right representation, have never been given the chance to voice um, and speak of suffering. And so we're getting lashing out on social media where uh, things are, are being are, are kicking off um with the smallest, smallest uh, conflict or, or tension or argument. Now, I just want to touch on with Khaloud, you know, what kind of role does the GCC play in this, you know, especially with the newly released visa restrictions on Sudan? Mm -hmm. uh, well, how are the Ethiopians and Eritrean migrants that are fleeing into the country, how can they look to even try and find employment? I mean, it's, it's very interesting to talk about the GCC as, as a one unitary entity, I think, anymore after the uh, Saudi UAE versus Qatar um, tensions. Um, but certainly the UAE has a massive role to play because it uh, supports both Eritrea and um, and Ethiopia. The UAE has bases in both Asab and Massawa in Eritrea, bearing in mind that not very many countries deal with Eritrea. Um, and it, it was a guarantor of the peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia for which uh, Abiy Ahmed won the Nobel Prize and for which Asayas Afwerki, the uh, Eritrean uh, president, won the Order of Zaid, which is uh, at first class level. So um, there's a lot of patronage, if you will, coming from the UAE. And so people are looking for the UAE for some kind of leadership in this because uh, it has interests on both sides of the border. You know, if the, if the TPLF really does want to secede and that's what its ultimate goal is, then um, I think it's, it's kind of in the wrong region to do so. You know, both Ethiopia and Sudan as its neighbors have both had secessionist um, movements that have then come up with um, independent countries, both in Eritrea in 1991 for Ethiopia and South Sudan in 2011 for Sudan. And, you know, these are not the countries that I think you can make a plausible case for secession with, um, just 
because of how painful those those two secessions were. I think the UAE is interesting here again because it also backs the military in Sudan. And so what you have is the TPLF actually in the Tigray region is cocooned by three different military uh, movements or military commanders that are backed by the UAE. And it's unlikely that uh, the UAE will you know, side with them. In fact, they say they certainly won't. But this again comes back to this idea that, that you were saying earlier, which is that actually the people on the ground, because you asked about what about people um, who are, you know, fleeing war and trying to find livelihoods and jobs, etc. They are not the biggest consideration in this. This is a very much a geostrategic game. And it's not just the Horn of Africa, but increasingly the Red Sea uh, area is becoming very, very important. And currently what you have is Egypt, Saudi and the UAE um, dominating Red Sea politics, but what we're what we're seeing is that Ethiopia actually, though it does not, it's not on the Red Sea. Ethiopia is landlocked. It has a lot of influence in both Djibouti and Somaliland, and also um, in Eritrea since the peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia was um, sort of you know struck, even though it hasn't really been finalized because Ethiopian troops still are, are still in Eritrea, and so Ethiopia, you know, as a unifier of of the African region as a unifier of the horn, you know, the African Union is based there. Successive um, Ethiopian leaders have, you know, called for the unity of African states, ironically, when they couldn't really maintain the unity within the country. But anyway, and so Ethiopia kind of was, was uh, emerging as this powerhouse, if you will. And, you know, there are talks within the region that all of this is sort of, uh, you know, the machinations of of certain clients of the Gulf, um, that you know that it suits Afwerki really, really well to have a weakened Ethiopia, it suits Egypt really well to have a weakened Ethiopia because of the dam issue. Um, but of course, you know, us within the region, we feel very much that this disintegration would not suit anyone actually. The human cost was going to be incredibly high and that's one aspect of it. But you have two countries effectively in transition, one which is an absolute dictatorship in the form of Eritrea. Um, and you know, Somalia has its own problems. You know, the region is just not stable enough to be able to weather this. And you know, we've seen this because successive uh, mediation attempts from within the region have not been that successful. Even the AU has not been that successful. And I think part of that goes back to the fact that Abiy Ahmed has managed to convince actually the international community mostly that this is in hand, that he is doing this, that he has the right to do this. And this is a law and order incursion. It's not, you know, um, the instigation of war, despite uh, what it looks like, despite the human cost. You know, it took three weeks, maybe even four weeks for the Security Council to even respond to this. The EU has been slow. The AU has been slow, despite the fact that, you know, um, we have seen this coming, if you will, at least since September. Some people were predicting this even earlier because of the way that um, Abiy Ahmed was dismissing Tigrayan uh, army officers both within Ethiopia's borders and in the Amazon, uh, the AU uh, peacekeeping troops in Somalia. And so the writing was sort of on the wall, but he has managed to, to convince people that he is the person in charge and he should be trusted to do so, to be so. Um, and thus people have kind of left him to his own devices. I don't think that that's the prudent thing to do because um, as with was saying, you know, there's this kind of conjuring up of hatred um, that really has no end in sight. And there is, aren't really the mechanisms in place at the moment to mitigate that feeling. And I think we need to be aware that a lot, oftentimes these kinds of conflicts don't really rest on logical rationale. They rest a lot on feelings of um, 
of, of, of enmity between different people. Fatheya, um, uh, just to sort of round this up, I mean, we're getting to a point where it looks inevitable. Um, the conflict looks like it might have to play out. And um, there are way too many players. Uh, and we, as just we just heard, you know, the UAE has a huge hand to play here. So mm. just to sort of, um, in conclusion, uh, what do you project happening in the next couple of weeks and how long do you really think this is going to go on for before we can even have players at a table possibly looking for a, a serious resolution um, yeah. and all of these points that both of you have brought up are highlighted discussed and resolved. Abi Ahmed is a military man um, he, he he's qualified to to really to plan it, strategize it, look at the proportionality aspect of beginning a war and also ending a war. But this is not a war. This is, to him, it's a law. This is about uh, preventing um, criminals from, or, or, or he's referring to sometimes to the, to the to TPLF as um, terrorist organizers, you know, t terrorists that are trying to over destabilize Ethiopia, so to speak, which are, wording is very important in, in the political arena. I mean, you can't say what's happening in Tigray now is a genocide because that, again, is to do with threshold. It's not like how it was in Rwanda or Rohingya. Uh, I mean, you really have to be careful with the words, wordings that you use when you're describing genocide or when you're describing a war, an all-out war. So in terms of uh, future prospect, we anticipated that he it wasn't it wasn't going to be a prolonged fight because the deck really is uh, uh, you know is is in terms of influence and um, in terms of support, Abi Ahmed has it. Uh, the TPLF are landlocked in in terms of the Tigray region. Um, Eritrea is 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 after the shelling uh, that has been admitted by Gabriel Michael in in Asmara. Um, Eritreans are not going to give TPLF any endorsement. To you know, they they are they already their foreign policy regarding that is is well known. Um, so and in terms that's why a lot of people are going um, um, fleeing to to Sudan to avoid the conflict. So in this sense, the TPLF doesn't have much support. It might have had done so in the past before 2018 it might have garnered international uh, influence but these old guards or these people that were in charge of the tplf or still are um their support is not as powerful as say abi ahmed is or the or the way he has controlled you know the internet the the um the press the the, the way he said the way he believes as well that international law, when you look at international law, chapter seven, you, uh, the United Nations will not make a mandate or a resolution to kind of, to kind of uh, do a chapter seven on Ethiopia because the conflict is not um, breaching peace and security. There are serious loopholes, you know, there are serious um, things that has to happen for, that, for us to think that this is an all out war. And as far as, as far as I can see at the moment, um, Abu Ahmed is already in the capital of the of of, of uh, Mekale. The TPLF. Um, there's rumours now that the Gabriel Michael is in South Sudan, um, and uh, lo and behold, who's visiting South Sudan is the head of state uh, Assisi uh, himself. So there is quite a lot of um, not just rumours flying around, but also there's quite a lot of things that are happening in the horn 
um, you know, the EU did say recently after the Americans tried to negotiate the GRD uh, mediation um, that the EU and Russia would, would try and kind of find a solution for, for the ongoing tension between Ethiopia and Egypt. And obviously Sudan is in the middle uh, of, of this. So in that aspect, these are the external factors. So this has to ha happen as well. So this, this, this little, um, you know, disagreement between the TPLF or, or an Abe, it has to be squashed, it has to be contained, it has to be um, dissolved um, for, for them to move on to the bigger issue, which is Ethiopia is going through uh, COVID, it's going through financial um, economic uh, woes. Uh, because of that, Ethiopia is a landlocked country. It's 115 million people. Um, it, owns, it owes quite a significant amount of external debt to China. Um, it needs to kind of kickstart its economy to kind of alleviate the, you know, Abia promised the nation when he came to power that he was going to do lots of reform, lots of economic reforms, social reforms. That has, that has to be seen. That has to actually be tangible. So you can't just, you know, it's 115 million people. Um, for this to escalate into an all-out war is unlikely because it will, I, I don't see it that it's, it's going to happen that way. Okay, Fatia, um, I'm going to yeah. cut you off here because I'm watching Khalud shake her head. I think she's got something she wants to say in regards to um, maybe quashing the conflict and uh, how, things, uh, how things should move forward. So Khalud, please give us your conclusion. I, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that, uh, you know, that, that this is not a war and that Abiy, as, as this kind of great reformer that came in in 2018, should be sort of allowed to go ahead with his reformist agenda because, you know, his reformist agenda is actually one that was started before he even came and he just kind of really uh, rebooted it, if you will. But, you know, the, the point is here that, you know, we're not trying this case in, in, in a in a, you know, a, a, in a legal court, you know, we're not trying to prove the burden for genocide, which is, you know, famously quite difficult to prove. What we're saying is that all signs point towards that sort of language, that sort of behavior, calling um, the TPLF terrorists already starts this dehumanization process. And of course, in the Middle East, people are no stranger to the kind of, the, 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 you know, the, the way that that designation terrorist is used and how it can strip people of their humanity in order for you to then uh, deal with them how you see fit without public outcry and more importantly without people coming to the defense of said terrorists. So I think what I'm watching is rather than just the effect or the impact or the scale of this because okay it's not a, it's not you know massive in scale as a lot of wars are. What I'm watching is the modality, what I'm watching is the language, what I'm watching is the way that uh, state forces are being uh, targeted at uh, kind of smaller uh, forces. And right now, you know, one of the things we have to remember about the TPLF as well is that they're very good at fighting insurgency type warfare and they will retreat into the mountains as they have done now that Abe has entered Mekele. And so, you know, this isn't going to be this uh, sort of... Uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Hitler's uh, going, Hitler going into Russia in the winter, um, being completely sort of outclassed and unable to um, predict how, how, how far this would go. And, you know, 
World War One, people said it would be over by Christmas. There is always a lot of hubris at the beginning of a war, and then you know don't really have an idea of what the scale could be. And yes, as we've said, you know the, the TPLF is cornered by all three sides by military regimes that hate it. I say it's a fleki hates the TPLF because they've reneged on the promise uh, to remove Ethiopian so soldiers from Eritrean land after independence. Um, the Sudanese government is trying to distance itself from the TPLF because it's a Bashir area relationship there, um, and so they don't have much support. What they do have, uh, there's also an, an aging uh, hierarchy in the TPLF um, and not so much new blood with a lot of defections. However, what we could see is that this longer term insurgency that they are very good at fighting could continue to be fought. And with shifting regional allegiance alliances, we don't also don't know what this will look like. So I'm just worried more about the balkanization of the region. Um, and, and the problem is that it's something that you picked up on as well, uh, Sophie, you know, how this relates to Lebanon is that, you know, yes, many countries have these kind of regional disputes based on ethnicity and religion, et cetera, and sectarian um, divisions. But in Lebanon and in Ethiopia, these sectarian divisions are codified in yeah. law, in the modality of government. Um, the fact that in Lebanon you have, you know, the president and the prime minister being from specific sects means that there's an assumption that people vote on blocks based on ethnicity and therefore you can never get political consensus that breaches or goes beyond ethnic and uh, sectarian ties and therefore you can never cultivate that kind of politics that is a more manifesto or principle based and is entirely always going to be about ethnic, uh, ethnic cleavages and um, ethnic allegiances and it's the same thing in Ethiopia and as long as that modality still remains and to be fair to Abiy Ahmed he has tried to sort of figure out a way around this ethnic federalism issue but it hasn't happened fast enough. And this is actually precisely the, um, the, the natural sort of conclusion or the natural result of ethnic federalism that you will get, you know, who knows, Oromia could be next, although unlikely Amhara could also decide that it does, you know, it's, it's, for whatever reason, it does not um, feel that, that, that the central government is looking after its interests. Once you balkanize a country and say each ethnic group has its own uh, autonomy over that region, you not just stifle um, any kind of democratic governance, you also make um, these cleavages even more entrenched and people will protect that, particularly as Fatheya said, the economy is not doing as well. And a, a very faulty model like ethnic federalism needs a lot of money to work, which is why I was kind of working under Zinat Meles. Uh, Zinawi, but under Abi, the economy is not doing so well at the moment, and that's why we're seeing these tripwires in terms of um, regional disputes. I agree with you, Khulud, on on definitely the aspects of you know what we're seeing at the moment, um, you know the language itself and the usage of it. But going back to the point, the TPLF they need support, and it looks it looks you know they need weapons, they need um, um, you know, the power behind them. And like you said, Eritrea is not going to be doing that. South Sudan has weapons embargo uh, by the UN and it's still going to continue on um, for, for a while. Um, the only logical step that I, that I can think of is perhaps, you know, surreptitiously maybe, um, you know, that there will be an, an a country that that has its own interest to, to have a destabilized Ethiopia, so to speak. But, but that's again, there is no proof of that. So we can't really say that. Um, and this looks 
like the Tigray will have to come to the table um, with the new administration that Abia thought about this quite well. He thought if I get rid of the TPLF and I set up my own people in Tigray, then that would be the, the governing um, bodies that will that will assist in my plan for greater Ethiopia. Um, and that's what's really coming across um, from, from all the reports that I, ha I have seen, from all the, you know, hearing all the sort of analysis that have been given by people within the region and people who are also talking about this in the international forum. Um, the balkanization of Ethiopia would have a huge impact on the Horn of Africa. And for that alone, um, this really cannot continue on. Ethiopia has to think in terms of context, not, you know, the ethnicity, the aspect of, you know, equitable sharing is of resources is fundamental here. And I think uh, I think through this through this entire podcast we've uh, we've probably speculated yeah. the amount of what could happen if this does go out of hand. Khulud and Fatheya, you guys have been absolutely wonderful. You have brought so many uh, points to the table. There's so many different things to look at here, and we as Levant X really appreciate everything you're doing and have really enjoyed having you with us. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time and jumping on today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before I go, I just wanted to remind those listening that if you are enjoying what you're hearing and would like us to keep putting out this type of content, please consider donating to our website, www.levantx.com. Every little helps. Levant X and my podcast is crowdfunded and a nonprofit. You can either subscribe with a monthly fee or a one-time payment is also found on the website. So thank you all for tuning in. And thank you once again to our lovely guests, Khulud and Fatheya. Goodbye.